welcome to episode 8 of Kid You Not. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on iTunes or email us on kidyounotpodcast at gmail.com. I am Lauren. And I'm Clementine. And today we're going to discuss an often overlooked part of children's literature. And yet one that's a big part of most people's reading histories and of vital importance to children. It is often credited with encouraging boys to read. And yet, in children's books at least, it's mainly regarded as second rate. It is also the only genre in children's literature that is defined only by what it is not. Have you guessed what we're going to talk about yet? Non-fiction. Right, so first of all, I'd like to ask you, Lauren, what actually is non-fiction? What is non-fiction? See, that's actually quite difficult because non-fiction, in the term implies, doesn't it, that whatever's in these pages will be true. So the first thing you think of is educational books. But actually, non-fiction, or the term non-fiction in publishing, encompasses an absolute plethora of things, including joke books, Mm-hmm. Would you say a joke? Is a fact. Pro- <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but they're still included. Cookbooks, um, even Michael Rosen's The Sad Book and things like that. That's mm-hmm. non-fiction. So actually, it's probably defined by what it isn't because it encapsulates so much. It's difficult to define what it is. <laughs> and so would you say that in children's publishing in particular let's say non-fiction for children is in some way different to non-fiction for adults because obviously for adults non-fiction is also extremely popular I mean I have tons of popular science books even though I know nothing about science and I have tons of history books even though I'm not at all a historian in what ways would you say it's different for children's publishing in non-fiction well to be honest there's some incredibly high quality things produced and often they look nicer because there's some things that have lovely illustrations, nice designers. But ch- non-fiction in children's publishing suffers from a huge stigma that adults' mm-hmm. non-fiction doesn't. Adults' non-fiction is unbelievably trendy at the moment. You can't turn on the television without seeing Brian Cox. I'm getting rather annoyed. And yet, other than Terry Deary, Dreary, Deary, Dreary, what is it? Is that the horrible history yeah, guy? Yeah, exactly. Other than can you name any other? <laughs> no, but to be fair, I wouldn't even have been able to name. That, that's the paradox, isn't it? I read enormous amounts of non-fiction for children when I was a child. I would be completely unable to tell you who wrote it or who illustrated well, it. Well, I can only name him because he was in Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> so we can start with that. We can start with the idea that this um, genre, if it, if it even is one, I think that's uh, debatable, is firstly defined by what it is not, but also imply it's implied that it's going to deliver some kind of fact, maybe even educational fact to children, and also that it's a genre that's associated in children's literature with a type of reading that's not particularly valued, and yet that's tremendously important. Well... Working for an educational publisher myself, I experience firsthand how books you work on are marginalised and um, regarded as inferior to fiction or adult non-fiction. So the reception of non-fiction in children's educational material in the book industry I think is a vital part of understanding why children's nonfiction enjoys this marginalised, poor relation mm-hmm. status that it does. 
As part of our preparation for this episode, I spoke to two very important people in children's non-fiction publishing. Caroline Royds of Walker Books, who publishes absolutely beautiful non-fiction with all the incredible design features and lovely illustrations that you get from highly creative non-fiction. Her authors include people like Nicola Davies, Viv French, um, really interesting, trendy. We'll link to that on the website, by the way, because I wouldn't blame you for not knowing who these people are for the reasons that we... Said earlier. Said earlier. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And I also interviewed Rachel Cook, publishing director of Franklin Watts, who does non-fiction aimed primarily at education and libraries market. So probably the sort of things you remember being in the library at school with lots of photo-based texts and um, things designed specifically to fit in with different stages of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Can we have a look at what, for example, what Rachel said um, about the fact that there is a stigma associated to, um, to non-fiction? Well, actually, Ray, um, I asked Rachel about a common accusation levelled at the sort of non-fiction that she publishes, mm-hmm. which Nicola Davies at last year's London Book Fair, that's one of Kaz's authors, in fact, um, referred to her type of books as tile-grouting, as someone storyboards the pictures and then the author is asked to squeeze the words mm-hmm. around, like, grouting tiles. Um, she... The whole description obviously implies a process that's bereft of any creative input and is ultimately not particularly exciting Mm -hmm. for a child. Rachel's response to this was that this is a completely unfair description of the book she publishes as it implies that they do not fulfil a creative purpose and are solely utilitarian. She aims to create books that don't just tick a box on a reading list. How about Kaz? Kaz says something that I think we should perhaps get out of the way now, uh, which is the idea that um, boys prefer to read non-fiction. In, for instance, it's a truism that some people prefer to read it. So you have to say that there are people for whom fiction mm. is not a turn-on. You and I would find that astonishing. But, um, you know, the truism is boys, of course. I do think that non-fiction is, can be incredibly useful in retaining a child's interest in reading because when children start to lose interest in reading, it's often something about the concept of fiction that puts them off. It doesn't feel like it's relevant to them. It's so far removed from their lives. They know that it's not true. It's just not interesting. Whereas reading a biography, of, even though it's still a story, because it's grounded in their lives and something that is true, it gives it an appeal or a grounding that fiction just doesn't have for them. Mm-hmm. Rachel Cook describes non-fiction's ability to retain male readers as a bit of a cliché, but something that is anecdotally entirely accurate. Yeah, and I think I mean I think it's fair to say that both of us read a lot of non-fiction when we were little and we we're very clearly girls, and maybe there is something as tiny bit sexist in the assumption that um, boys should prefer to read about real life while girls, you know, maybe might be able to project themselves um, more creatively into imaginative worlds. But actually, you know, um, I think that it's it's a genre of children's literature that's read by both boys and girls and that maybe um, it's particularly, you know, we talk about boys particularly because boys read so much less fiction than girls that it's quite striking to see how much non-fiction they devour. So maybe this is a nice opportunity to talk about 
what non-fiction offers that fiction doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we need to be extremely careful with this because, um, so coming from a literary criticism perspective, what's quite interesting even about the term non-fiction is that it implies fact basically fact as opposed to fiction generally. So, you know, we could even call it fact literature. Um, but the truth value of it, and we discussed the idea that it's it's literature about what is true, what is real. The truth value of it has to be very, very strongly interrogated for lots of different reasons, I think. I think um, before we say what, what nonfiction can bring, that fiction can't, I think it's important to note that children's literature is we've talked about it many times, uh, always subjected to conceptions of the world which are very often strongly ideological, so which are going to give ideas that are um, very political or socially constructed about the world. So obviously fiction is completely um, infused with with this ideology, fiction for children, we've discussed it before. Um, But I would say that even, that actually non-fiction might even more sneakily be inhabited by these um, ideological conceptions of the world. you know, a history book is never neutral. A history book for children, which presents itself as fact, might actually conceal very problematic visions of a country's perception of itself and perhaps completely condition ideas of national identity in children. Um, even science books, you know, deciding who's going to discover what in science um, and what you're going to tell children about who discovered what is a highly, highly ideological decision. And I think it would be very wrong to think of nonfiction as factual literature for children and as perhaps neutral or objective literature for children. I think we have to really acknowledge the fact that it can be a very strong vector of ideology, perhaps even more so than fiction. And I'll conclude by saying that actually nonfiction is a very trendy field of of study in um, the academic study of children's literature. I think lots of people are interested in it um, because its presentation as fact is all the more problematic. Well, a related point to that, because that is very well said, Claire, and I don't think I can really add anything (laughs) meaningful. Um, A related point is um, another charge often levelled at children's non-fiction, or some children's non-fiction, actually, is that in trying to select facts that are interesting to children, a grasp of the bigger picture is lost. Mm. Yeah, so I think it's fair to say, although it might be completely conditioned by the adult, um, that children have a bit of an encyclopedic mind and they like to catalogue things. And I remember when I was little, I would read um, non-fiction books about dinosaurs and about cats. So these were my two two favourite areas. (laughs) And I knew all the species of dinosaurs and all the, the breeds of cats absolutely by heart. And I knew, you know, there was something almost OCD about um, the way I compiled all the details I could find about the dinosaurs and about about the cats. Um, And I think that nonfiction plays quite a lot on this appetite that children seem to have for facts and for, you know, compiling facts and learning things about the world. And when, you know, if you subscribe to the idea that that childhood is is a sort of um, very, very active... you know, grabbing of information around um, and uh, and that children just try to constantly integrate information and are very curious about all that. Um, Maybe that's that's something that nonfiction offers that that fiction can't. And that is this very, very specific compilation of knowledge about some particular subjects that children will be for some reason interested in. So dinosaurs, horses, Egyptology, uh, football 
things like that. Like that would be the kind of things that you would expect, you know, a seven-year-old to be able to tell you the names of all the astronauts who've, you know, been on the moon. Which oddly are things we forget as adults, unless obviously you're obsessed with pub quizzes. <laughs> um, Rachel <laughs> Cook, that's the publishing director of Franklin Watts, she has some really interesting things to say about what she thinks non-fiction offers mm-hmm. children that fiction can't, other than information and facts, as you were just saying. She claims that it broadens pers- perspectives and opens up a child's world because a child can never visit Narnia, but they could go to Cambodia or America or Nigeria, anything like that. The child, you know, they, although they can't visit Victorian England, they could go in a museum and flesh out their experience of the book from seeing things from that period. It's She called it a door into the rest of the world, which I think is very nice. And for... And although I was a particularly, in, I wasn't shy, but um, I existed within my imagination as a child, definitely. I think it's something to do with being an only child. But a lot of children aren't like that and are far more outward looking. So surely non-fiction offers that sort of child far more than fiction. Yeah, I don't know. I would contest that to a degree which is that you know she's taken the one example Narnia that um, that you know children can't go to but when you think about it many many books uh, of fiction for children will actually trigger in the child reader um, interest personal emotional involvement with other places other people and even if these people are imaginary actually what fiction does is develop patterns of um, emotional responses to a certain type of of attitude, for example, or a certain idea of the human condition. So I think it's a bit it's a bit easy to say that nonfiction opens up the child to real places in the world, where fiction um, definitely does so in many places, and even when it doesn't open up the child to physical places, um, will have a very important part in constructing their emotional vision of the world. I think they do different types of things. I think they're both really valuable for education Mm. but I think my point is that non-fiction offers a more tangible Mm -hmm. solution or education for children and is much more easily navigable if they have something specific that they want to work through. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in something that Kaz says um, in her interview regarding um, what sells the most in terms of non-fiction. Well, creating a non-fiction list, Mm -hmm. um, there are topics, as you will be very well aware, that crop up again and again and again, like dinosaurs or animals. Certain animals are more popular than others, and I'm sure your other editor would agree that furry ones with ooh-ah potential do very well, and grrr ones, um, or ah ones like snakes and sharks do very well. So there's the kind of ugh unattractive element and then the very cutesy it's sometimes harder to make good books about the ones in between this i think is quite interesting because what you get here is um a very common belief that children love animals and love fairy animals um and uh, we were talking earlier about dinosaurs and about egyptology and about spaceships and about like there seems to be a number of subjects that are always going to be covered and that that you know they're always going to sell quite well I think Rachel says as well that history sells 
are the most sustained, but um, and that science, you know, used to be a strong area. I wonder if nonfiction doesn't condition children's appetite for a particular and quite perhaps quite limited number of subjects um, and number of um, objects of study. You have to bear in mind that publishers publish things that they think are going to sell. So publishing isn't an altruistic, completely altruistic process. So if there are subjects that sell well time and time again that we know children are going to be interested in and that they're going to want and that they're going to treasure. Okay, I'm going to stop you here because I think that's an interesting idea that you said that children are going to be interested in and are going to treasure, etc. I think what trans- what transpires here is a conception of, of, of the child, of the child reader, a conception of children as loving animals, as you know, interested in a certain number of things. But it's always a chicken and egg problem, isn't it? Is are, are children interested in animals and therefore we give them books about animals? Or is it because we give them books about animals that they're interested in animals? Well, interestingly, Kaz also says she publishes more the more creative, again in inverted commas, nonfiction to Rachel's educational or more educational nonfiction, but she said that her authors. This is in direct contrast to how um, most nonfiction is commissioned. I would like to point this out. But she pointed out that her authors decide what to write about. So it is an adult making that decision. Mm-hmm. But in this case, they just write about what they're interested in and carry on. Mm-hmm. So Nicola Davis writes predominantly about biology, but she writes anything and anything, everything within that category. She's written a book on, about different types of animal poo for very young readers and a book, a really good book actually, on Gaia theory for teenagers mm-hmm. who want to learn more about climate change and the environment. But um, That's another interesting one obviously because the prescriptive dimension of adult writing about the environment for children is, uh, is quite interesting and quite problematic as well. Like The, the whole spate of books about global warming can be seen to an extent as being quite prescriptive for the child. Okay, you should read this one though, it's good, it doesn't feel prescriptive. <laughs> but in general, non-fiction, the publishing process is completely different. The uh, publisher themselves will decide they want a book about going shopping with mum or whatever and approach a writer mm. to do that. So, um, Or the writer will just prepare a proposal and submit that usually in non-fiction there's actually far more creative power from the publisher mm-hmm. than there is in- right so this sort of takes out this the stigma of non-fiction i mean hopefully there will be one day when artists and authors of non-fiction will be considered to be as you know talented as creative and um as good for children between inverted commas um as fiction writers do you think that can never happen Do you know, I'm not sure that it will ever happen in print. There's too much of a stigma for children's non-fiction. The amount of space devoted to it in bookshops is tiny, tiny, tiny. And as you say, it's a chicken and egg situation um, because if there's not more space devoted to it, parents don't even see it. Mm. But um, from a publishing perspective, I do think there are huge opportunities to writers of non-fiction on the digital sphere mm. that do not exist within the printed form because uh, e- there's a lot of concepts behind ebooks and apps that make infinitely more sense for non-fiction proposals 
than fiction. The publishing company that I work for has done some really, really interesting things with digital products and it's because the propositions behind them actually work better than something printed Mm -hmm. they are engaging it's more convenient and I think digital offers a wealth of possibilities for a writer that were completely unheard of before I don't know if anyone has come across it but there is an app with beautiful illustrations by Dave McKean called The Magic of Reality which is by Richard Dawkins. Um, it, yeah, okay, mm. sorry for the most important part there. But it's definitely a book. I defy anyone to read it and say that it's not a book. But it does the most incredible things and with these beautiful illustrations and designs. So concretely, you have it on the iPad and then what happens with it? It's like, it, there's words on the page, mm-hmm. but there's illustrations that you can move and change. What the ah. words say, static. There's um, different exercises or games that open up from the text and my favourite one is all about uh, breeding frogs you breed some frogs to try and get them to have long legs (laughs) so that by the time you get to the sixth generation can they escape the snake as a French person I very strongly (laughs) approve of this attempt to breed frogs with longer legs but it's it's absolutely brilliant. You can see immediately why it's an app, why it isn't a printed book, and also why it's still a book. That's really uh, important and interesting, I think, when, you know, as we are entering a very, very digital age now with children who can, you know, use an iPad from even before they can read. And definitely, I think that's something that nonfiction can offer, that fiction might struggle to offer, and perhaps fiction might struggle perhaps because it is so well defined whereas non-fiction might here benefit from the fluidity of the of of its of its name actually let's get a bit further into this idea of fluidity um some sometimes it's quite difficult to tell if you're reading fiction or non-fiction and i think maybe we can finish this um discussion by talking about one example of a book which hovers i think in the margins of nonfiction and fiction, and that's the sad book by Michael Rosen, illustrated by Quentin Blake, which is one of the most beautiful children's books I think ever written, which is basically tells the story of um, of Michael Rosen, who unfortunately uh, lost his son um, to meningitis when he was about eighteen. Is that right? And um, so the sad book is about his struggle and you know coping with depression. I have to say, it didn't strike me as being a non-fiction book. Okay. You suggested that. But yes, in, in, it is a non-fiction book in the sense that everything in the book, you know, the, the narrator and the author are the same person, which is fairly rare in, in children's literature. And, it, it, you know, the story describes real events with real you know, feelings that were truly felt by the author. So it can be seen as non-fiction, definitely. Ca- well, it is categorised as non-fiction, that's so in publishing, it's yeah. categories, and that's very interesting. See, I didn't know that at all. I didn't think. So here you can see an example of a piece of non-fiction that challenges children's perceptions and pushes them and introduces topics that actually you would have thought would be more suited to a fiction book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. To conclude, if we had to rename non-fiction, what would we call it? So I think we have one answer from Kaz. Um, I've failed to get very far. Um, the one I liked was Mike's. It's back to Mike. Everything's back to Mike. Um, was Knowledgy with K-N. 
<laughs> so that's a good one. Rachel Kip, by contrast, doesn't think it needs renaming because if it's called something more pretentious, it becomes less accessible. She says it would be nice to find a term that encompasses all educational reading resources because just because books are educational doesn't mean they aren't fun. But she does worry that renaming the genre might go some way towards combating intellectual snobbery. What do you think? I think that um, it's a bit messy to have something that's defined by what it isn't. Um, so I do think you know it could be good to rename it. Um, I think the problem with renaming it is that it, as for example fact literature which you know makes sense in terms of fiction being generally opposed to fact might actually give a wrong idea of it because nothing is really fact when you give it to children as I said there's always an ideological um, slant to it um, I really like Michael Rosen's suggestion yes, <laughs> but maybe actually maybe the, the fluidity of non-fiction allows it to go into uncharted territory shall we conclude then by answering or addressing one key issue that people bring up all the time why do we need children's non-fiction in the age of the internet and of wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> although there was a blackout the other day Kim, so yes I true <laughs> Yes, why would we? I think, as you said earlier, actually, there might be uh, we might we might be heading towards a, a much bigger blending of um, of you know internet of the internet and nonfiction um, in the g- digital age. So actually, you know, both of them might sort of feed into each other. But why would you pay for things when you can find them out for free? I think is the essential. Yeah. Um, Peter Osborne, but then again, he does own a very successful publisher of non-fiction children's books, thinks that it's the internet's an inappropriate resource for a child because there's just so much there mm. and the child has to sort through it themselves, which Philip Pullman describes in an altogether more poetic manner. Obviously. <laughs> children trying to browse the internet is like looking at a landscape through a keyhole. It's very difficult the children to locate something that is authentic you know properly verified because anyone can put anything on, mm. especially on wikipedia so, i mean people even do podcasts and put them <laughs> exactly the information is in a non-fiction book it has been checked the information has been verified it's been carefully sorted for the child so calibrated know, calibrated which obviously that leads to problems with mm. clem's ideological <sighs> possession but <laughs> it is generally packaged in a way that's more convenient for the child yeah definitely thank you so much for listening to us we hope we've given you some food for thought yes and some appetite for non-fiction and really we encourage you to go out and look for yourself um how wonderful and uh, varied this world is and if any of you are working on anything interesting with non-fiction particularly if it's digital tell us about it yes Okay, and next time we will discuss, so not a genre this time, but something that's very important in uh, the study of children's literature, which we've mentioned many times, but we're going to do a proper episode on it. And it is... Something I'm very sceptical about being able to fit into half an hour, but we'll try, won't we? (laughs) It's ideology. Ideology in children's literature, ideology and children's literature, and first of all, what ideology even means. So, see you next time for a very interesting episode, obviously. And in the meantime, um, go to our website, kidyounotpodcast.com, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Yes, and follow us on Twitter at kidyounotpod. Bye. Bye.